Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, choir. You ready to keep going? Revelation is uh, it's a frightening book to preach, especially at the big, when you're looking at it as it's laid out, because uh, imagine if it's tough to read what it's like to... But I've personally found it very rewarding to begin to dig in this thing and try to take seriously the promise of God's blessing, that if we read it and hear it, we will be blessed by it. I hope that the Lord is doing the same to you. Let's see how your memory work is going. I told you that we can remember what takes place in chapter 6 with a little memory aid. What is going on in chapter 6? That's right, the six seals. We're seeing that the Lamb of God, who is the only one who's worthy, is breaking open the six, actually there's seven, but six of the seven seals on the scroll of human destiny. And as he does so, all hell breaks loose on the earth. Uh, As we've seen, uh, war, famine, pestilence, uh, tyranny of all sorts, uh, religious persecution, even nature uh, is falling apart at the seams. It's important to, to note th- that this is the result of human sinfulness. What we're seeing here is the, it's the natural outcome of humanity that wants to go its own way. And so if basically the seven seals that are opened up are God saying, all right, have your way. If this is what you want, this is what you will get. And this will be the result. It is almost unrestrained mayhem. And I say almost unrestrained because then comes along precious chapter 7. And what is the memory aid for remembering chapter 7 in Revelation? Sabbath, the seventh, Sabbath. For suddenly we come to an interlude. It is a rest. I want you to lock that away in your computer banks because as we continue on, you're going to see that this is one of the themes that recurs again and again and again. That is the interlude of God, the rest of God, the boundary making of God who will not allow even the most horrible evil, to go unrestrained. God steps in and he says, that is enough. And so we have chapter 6, the breaking open of these seals. We have the Sabbath, which this 7, which is a wonderful respite. And it's a good thing because in a moment we're going to open the final seal and we're going to discover that introduces us to a whole new series of sevens. Seven trumpets and seven bowls. In this case, however, as we approach it, it is not the result of our own activity. The seals are the, it's the, the, the plagues that come upon us because of our own broken sinfulness. When we come to the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, this God who has restrained himself for all of history finally says, I've had enough. And so he begins to visit, visit judgment upon a world in rebellion. And believe me, it is not pretty. 
But we have this break before we get there in chapter 7 where God places in the beginning of the text, and we saw it last week, a seal on the forehead of every one of his believers. It's 144,000 that are numbered, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, although not all are mentioned, as you recall. I shared last week with you, and and I know that some of you disagree because you shared that with me afterwards, that I believe that the 144,000 represents the church. Paul talks about the new and true Israel in in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. And if you want to study that more, you ought to go there to read it. But that's where he talks about what the new Israel is. And the new Israel, as the followers of Jesus Christ, whether they be Jewish or not, we have been engrafted into the tree, and we now make up the new Israel. And when when, when John speaks about the 144,000, I believe he's talking about the church of Jesus Christ. They are being sealed. They are being protected. God is going to execute judgment. But before he does, he places his own mark of protection and ownership upon his children so that they will be safe through what is going to occur. Well, let's turn and see what is going to occur as we read the rest of our text this morning out of Revelation chapter 8. 7, 9 through 8, 5. Hear the word of God. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and and around the elders and the four living creatures. Do you see these themes coming back again and again? They fell down on their faces once again before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? Now, parenthetically, you know this is a test. And John's about to flunk. I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over him, over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. Isn't that something? The lamb becomes the shepherd. Don't miss that. That's a wonderful image. Who knows better how to shepherd sheep than super lamb? (laughs) And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Just one this time apparently. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to us now through this magical and powerful word. We don't understand these stories, but Lord, we want to understand them and we want to understand the God behind them. We open our hearts and our minds up to receive your gift today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the opening of this morning's text, we see yet another crowd, don't we? 
Now, there were 144,000 in the first crowd. How many are in this crowd? Countless. There's so many we can't even count them all. 144,000 is pretty big, but this is a multitude too large to be counted. They are comprised of every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Take a load of that. And it is not often that nation appears first in a list. It is often, also, often tribe, tongue, tribe, nation. It, but in scriptures, that then here it is the nation, which I think underscores what we said earlier about the 144,000. For suddenly, it, it, it doesn't matter what nation you're from. Those who are here, whether they are from a different nation, tongue, tribe, they are all here because they are the followers of Jesus Christ. They are standing before the, God, the, the throne, before the Lamb. They are all clothed in white robes. So you're seeing that theme recurring again and again? It means righteousness. It means God's own possession. Probably means death. It probably means they have died and they are standing before the Lord in glory. They are waving palm branches, which means victory. That's the sign of victory. All right? So here are the, the, uh, the countless multitudes before the throne of God in their white robes, resplendent, waving palm branches of victory before the Lord. What is this all about? Because we just had a crowd scene. You know, this isn't good movie making. You have a crowd scene, then you move inside the house. But this is two crowd scenes in a row. The 144,000 was fine. Now it's countless millions. What is going on here? I think this is a before and after picture. Follow me here. I believe that the 144,000 represents the church before the period near the end of human history, which the book of Revelation calls the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation will be carried out by an evil world dictator that will make Adolf Hitler look like a kindergarten teacher. And we will meet this horrible man later on in chapter 13 of the book. I'm sure you can't wait. The Revelation calls him Antichrist. Now, the 144,000 are sealed, I believe, to protect them from the time of the great tribulation and the persecution that will come when God and Antichrist do battle. Those who are followers of Jesus are going to avoid the God-separating consequences of the great tribulation. But, and here's the controversial statement of the day, just in case you ever have trouble noticing which ones they are, but they will go through the tribulation. They will go through the Great Tribulation. Now, I know this will come as a shock and disappointment to many of you. I know that many Christians teach that the church will be raptured before the Great Tribulation, taken up, as Paul says, in a twinkling of an eye. I do not believe that's what the Scriptures teach. I don't believe it is what Jesus taught. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus himself on the end times. I think that's a good place to start. He speaks in Matthew chapter 24, and you might wish to read this in its entirety if you'd like to know what Jesus had to say about end things. And overlay that against everything else that you hear, more importantly, what you read out of Scripture. Here's what Jesus said. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, and most scholars believe that to be Antichrist, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying this. He doesn't say that the church, the elect, as he calls them, will avoid persecution. He says that they will go through the greatest persecution the world has ever seen. But he says that for the sake of the elect, God will cut the time short. 
The church, I believe, will endure the great tribulation. If this is not so, why do the servants receive the God's seal to protect them against the wrath that he is going to pour out against the rest of the world? I understand, my brothers and sisters, that this does not mesh with much of what is being taught in American Christianity. Here's the the attitude that I think often comes across. Jesus may have spoken of the persecution of his followers, and millions of people down through the ages may have died a martyr's death for their faith, And even to this very moment, Christians may be dying in the Sudan and China and many other places around the world, but surely God will deliver the American Christian church from suffering and persecution. Isn't that what we're saying? I mean, who cares if it's the Great Tribulation or not? If you're being killed for your faith in China, it really doesn't matter. And yet we are, we dare to say, well, we will be delivered. The Christian church in America will be delivered, mm, whatever else is happening in, in the rest of the world. I believe there's an underlying arrogance to this theology. An arrogance that ignores Jesus' teachings about the costly nature of discipleship. And an arrogance that ignores the pain and the suffering that Christians have faced historically for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he told us it would happen. I am glad that we are not currently experiencing persecution. I do not pray that it will come. I know I've been, I've been told that the church grows stronger in a period of persecution. I don't mind being a little less strong, if that's the price, to be perfectly honest. I pray that we won't feast this time. But I do not it is, believe that it is faithful to the scriptures to pretend that when times of suffering come, whether it is the great tribulation or not, that somehow the church of Jesus Christ will be exempt from it. For if that is the expectation of the Christian church and suddenly we find ourselves persecuted, confronted by persecution, great or otherwise, what will happen to the faith of so many who bought into this gospel that preserves them from all tribulation? That is not the gospel of Jesus and he never promised that. In fact, quite to the contrary, he said, take up your cross if you will follow me. And that is not a piece of decoration. That is not jewelry. That is an instrument of your death. This is, a, this is a sermon to preach to build the population in your church. <laughs> the great uh, tribulation does not occur in Revelation until chapter 13 when the Antichrist makes his appearance. Clearly, the vision in chapter 7 anticipates what is to come. Now, I don't want you to get frustrated. I know you would love it. It was A, B, C, D. This reminds me of a Tom Clancy novel. You read one chapter and you're just getting into it and you're trying to figure out whether the president's kid's going to get kidnapped or not. He jumps to some other part of the world and you say, wait a second, will you finish that story before you go over here to Ethiopia or wherever you're taking me? And that's what John does. He jumps from one scene to another. It is apocalyptic. That's the image. It's surreal. And you just have to deal with it. But I think that when we see the 144,000, you see the church that is being sealed, that is identified as God's own, so that no matter what the Antichrist might do to them, including killing them, they cannot be separated from God's eternal love. And then when you look at verse 9 of the same verse, suddenly John has fast-forwarded the tape. He's jumped ahead beyond the tribulation to a glimpse of what it will be like when everyone who has been sealed by God, everyone who belonged to Jesus, has died and now stands before God in the security of his eternal presence. So we have this great multitude standing before the throne of God. However they got there through death, through the rapture, if I'm wrong, it's conceivable. But clearly they stand safely in the presence of God and of the lamb-like lion who redeemed them with his blood. And what is their response? What is the nature of their response? 
Well, they can't help themselves. They break out in praise, don't they? It doesn't say here that they sing these words. But in this book that is so filled with songs of praise, it's hard to conceive that they don't sing these words. And even if they speak them, don't you imagine that millions that speak out a word like this, it must sound like glorious music, a great anthem of praise. And they say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can you conceive this image in your head? Can you imagine this? Countless multitudes, millions, billions perhaps, all dressed in gleaming white robes, waving palm branches, the seal of God upon their forehead, who have bowed their hearts to the Lamb who sits on the throne, and they cry out their words of praise and thanksgiving to the God who has saved them. And then they listen as the angels respond in glorious words of praise as well. It is a scene of absolute jubilation. It is a glimpse ahead of a time when all evil and horrible about this world will be behind us and forgotten in the presence of the glorious and gracious and redemptive Lamb of God. Heaven is in Bedlam. Heaven is in heavenly uproar. And then it all stops. Did you see it? And then it all stops. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, so this is the end of the interlude, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Suddenly, the vision stops. Suddenly, the glorious praise ceases. On my last trip to the Holy Land, I did something I've never done before. We stayed, and I will never do it any other way again. We stayed in a hotel inside the city walls, which meant that we got to get up every morning, and it's pretty easy to do because jet lag kills you. So you're waking up. I'll have a funny story to tell about Rick Murray. On jet lag, sometime, not now. But jet lag kills you, and so it's easy to get up. You're waking up 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning anyhow, so you get up, shower, and make your way out, and just wind your way through the mysterious and the wonderful and ancient streets of Jerusalem. It, is, it was really a high point of my experience, and, and I will never do it in another way. It was wonderful. Rick and I, Rick is the pastor at First Church Yakima, a wonderful growing church. He'll be preaching again for me this summer when I'm on sabbatical. Uh, Rick uh, and I have been collaborating on this series in Revelation. He was my roomie in Israel. And so we got up one morning, and we actually got up every morning, and, but in a couple of instances shared two very memorable worship experiences while we were staying at the Gloria Hotel in Jerusalem. One morning before sunrise, we got up, and we made our way to the Western Wall. Now, you know it incorrectly as the Wailing Wall, but it is the Western Wall. And when we got there, Rick and I, we discovered hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of Jewish men who were gathered in worship before sunrise. All of them wore their tefillim, tefillim, I mean. They, that's also known as phylacteries, where they wrap, they, they have a box that has scriptures inside the box, and they put it on their forehead, and they tie it around, and then they have it and tie it on around their arms in, in obedience to the passage in Deuteronomy 6. And so they wear these, they wear their prayer shawls. Interestingly enough, they also have their cell phones hanging on their belts. It was a, it was a surreal image in its own. Didn't go off too often. They went off less there than in this church. <clears throat> in order to be in that area, Rick and I had to cover our, hat, our heads. And so they have these little worthless uh, paper yarmulkes that you put on your head as you go in. And uh, they fall off all the time. <clears throat> we moved to the back and we sat down in a bench just to take all of this in. Watching all of this. Hundreds of Jews in their regalia. Most of them bobbed up and down as they offered their prayers to God. Some of them read from the Torah, which was unrolled on standing tables like this. 
Some of them prayed silently, but most of them prayed out loud. And some of them prayed very out loud, shouting out their prayers so that everyone in the nation could hear them. Rick and I decided that we would share in a time of prayer as well. And so we put our heads close together because we couldn't hear each other if we didn't. And we knelt down and closed our eyes and leaned over and began to pray loudly. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been heard over the din of the worship. And suddenly, I am very aware of the fact that I am the only one in that entire area that is praying out loud. Very out loud. It was something like this. It goes complete dead silence, absolute silence. And I'm saying, and thank you, Lord, for the chance for us. (laughs) About 800 Jewish heads turned and looked at us. For some reason, at a some signal of which we were unaware, <laughs> I don't think we're in the right club on this one, and we never did figure it out, everyone went quiet. All hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that were packed into that courtyard, there was only one out loud prayer in the moment, and it was wah! <laughs> Even the screamer in the corner went silent. We think it was the moment when the sun rose, but we don't know how everyone knew at that precise moment to have everything go absolute still. And uh, I kept my head down because I didn't want to look anymore at what (laughs) these stupid Americans. It was an absolutely amazing transformation. In one moment, the place was in religious bedlam, and in the next moment, it was absolutely positively still. I imagine now better what this moment must be like in heaven. For one moment, the heavens are awash with the praises of God's creation, and suddenly the Lamb opens the last of the seven seals, and everything goes dead quiet, absolutely still. Can you imagine the contrast? This is heaven. Things are never quiet in heaven. We've already learned that. God has creations, creatures that were created for the purpose of giving perpetual praise. They sing, they bow down, that's all they do. All of the time. They are never quiet. And yet suddenly it goes still. And and interestingly, he says, for about a half an hour. Do you know how long a half an hour of silence is? That's a long time. This isn't a symbolic image. I think it was a half an hour. And he just sat there having this vision, (laughs) wondering, okay, what's next? What's going on here? It's a long time of silence. But here we are, heaven, filled with creatures that exist for the purpose of shouting their praises to God. All of a sudden, it goes dead quiet for 30 long minutes. Why? Why does the heavens, why did the heavens go still? Why does God hush up his worshipers to hear the prayers of the saints? Did you see it? He does it to hear the prayers of the saints. After the Sabbath of chapter 7, we are back to the calamity of the seals. We turn our eyes back to the earth where all hell is still breaking loose. And we've had a glimpse of a glorious future. We know we have... We return to what must first occur. These are the events that must play themselves out. There is an antichrist that must arise. There are martyrs who are continuing to suffer. There is a church that is crying out to the Lord not to be forgotten, not to be abandoned, not to be ignored. And in this wonderful moment, God hushes the heavenly hubbub for one purpose. He wants to hear the prayers of his people. 
He wants to hear the prayers of his beloved who bear the seal of himself upon their foreheads. And so the heavenly household, so noisy, that God has to do what every earthly father has ever had to do at one time or another when he's on the telephone in the living room, and he said, will you please be quiet? I'm trying to listen to what they're saying. And that's exactly what occurs. What an image. I told you that Rick and I had two memorable experiences. Here's the other one. One other early morning, we got up and we made our way through the quiet streets to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional site of the resurrection of Jesus. We uh, got there in the early morning hours to have our devotion, if you can imagine, the place where Jesus rose from the dead. And when we arrived, we found there was a Catholic Mass underway in English. And so we joined in. And we were standing right outside of the tomb of Jesus. And it sits beneath a huge dome, rising many, 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 many stories above your head. Shafts of sunlight. Shafts of sunlight pierced down through the darkness of that dome. And the pillars, the walls, all of it was, of course, ancient. The first church was built there in the fourth century. And the Roman liturgy was only slightly familiar. We were having a little trouble following which page of the book we're supposed to be on. But I will never forget one moment in the service, for just as we were ready to distribute the sacrament, two young altar boys took their censers and they walked forward and they began to swing these censers back and forth in different directions. As you know, that they're kind of a lantern-like figure on the end of a chain and inside of it is burning incense and they have holes and so you swing it and more and more smoke billows forth and, and this smoke was pro- produced. Now, I'd seen censers before and I knew about them, but in this case, I watched as the curls of this pungent smoke billowed out of these censers and, and wafted their way upwards through the shaft of sunlight over the heads of the worshippers above the chapel that housed the tomb of the risen Jesus and dissipated into a dome that rose far above our heads. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre has never meant much to me, frankly. I find it too ornate, too gaudy to be very meaningful. But in this moment, I suddenly gained a new appreciation for it because I knew that I would be preaching on this passage and I had a wonderful image. The scriptures here say that the prayers of the saints are being mixed with the smoke of incense and they are offered up and they begin to climb their way up towards the heavens. And as they rise, they become wispy and dissipated and barely visible. Perhaps shortly they are lost in the light and the loftiness of heaven. But in this glorious text, we have an image of God as a prayer catcher. He hushes the hubbub of the heavens. He leans forward to listen and he reaches out and snatches the prayers as they rise up to him one at a time. Every single one precious to him, not one that will be lost. And though they are as heir to the rest of us, to God, they are precious enough that he commands heavens to be silent so that he will not miss one. I am struck by this image. Recently I've had to confess to God that my own prayers have been more stale and infrequent than I want them to be. I have had to confess that I sometimes wonder how much of a difference my prayers make. With all the people in the world, all of the prayers in the world, all of the problems, how is it that God really can hear me? How can he possibly have the time to listen to me and respond to one insignificant person? Ever thought that? God cares so much for the prayers of Mark Toon and every one of his saints that he hushes the heavenly hubbub so that he won't miss a word, a syllable, not a breath. If you're not praying, start.
If you are praying but wondering if, whether it makes it a difference, whether it really matters to God or not, stop wondering. It does, and it does. What a glorious God to hush the heavens so that he might hear from his earthly children. Let's offer up some louder praise to him as we stand together and sing the doxology. <laughs>